Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Continuing our series that we just began last Sunday in the book of Hebrews called The Supremacy of Christ for the Endurance of the Saints. One of the challenges of Bible reading is the reality that what we're actually doing is we're reading ancient texts. I'm reminded of that uh, this year as I read through the Bible using uh, the new ESV Archaeology Bible. It's very interesting. As I read through the text of scripture, the study notes talk about the, the, the coins and the, the, the ancient ruins and the, the ancient texts that have been discovered around the same periods of time. And we're reminded that the Bible itself is an ancient text, a collection of ancient texts written over thousands of years. These are books and letters written by men who lived many, many years ago who had a different view of God and of the world than we do. Now, often we don't notice this because the Bible continues to speak with such power and relevance to our lives, but at other times we're reminded of just how different these writers were by the language and concepts that they use. And as we read our passage today, we will find that that is the case in this passage. The apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews is continuing his efforts to show us the supremacy of Christ for the endurance of the saints And he does that by making an argument that some of us may have difficulty relating to. He contrasts the glory of Christ with the glory of angels. Now, we don't understand the relevance of this argument because we don't understand angels the way that a first century Jewish Christian would have understood angels. We talk about guardian angels. We talk about, as a culture, Uh, people who die and become angels. We talk about being touched by an angel, or we talk about being sold cream cheese by an angel. But what we don't talk about is being destroyed by an angel. That was what angels did in the Old Testament. Angels had two primary tasks in the Old Testament, to speak God's word and to dispense God's justice. They were messengers, and you could say that they were executioners. They carried out God's judgment. If you look carefully at some of the well-known Old Testament texts, you'll notice that it was angels that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an angel that brought a plague on Jerusalem after King David uh, conducted his sinful census. It was an angel that cut down 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian army during the time of King Hezekiah. And it was an army of angels that surrounded the prophet Elijah, Elisha, excuse me. And they appeared as chariots of fire and horses of fire. When first century Jews thought of angels, they didn't feel comfort or sentiment. No, what they felt was terror. They felt terror. 
because they knew that these powerful spiritual beings held the power of life and death itself. And yet the apostle here isn't trying to point our attention to angels, but to the one who is the commander of angels, the, 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 the Lord of hosts, the commander of the angel armies, the king who commands them and sends them out to accomplish his will. And compared to this king, the, 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 the glory of angels is nothing in comparison. That is the argument of our text today, and therefore, that is our topic. So as we begin to study this passage, let us read it together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The title of this sermon is The King and His Angels. The King and His Angels. We'll have three points today. First, the name of the king. Second, the throne of the king. And third, the work of the king. First, the name of the king. And many of you know that names are very significant in the Bible. How we tend to use names is we just use them to distinguish one person from another. But the Bible uses names to actually capture a person's character or role. Think about Adam naming his wife Eve, which sounds like the Hebrew for life giver. Or God changing Abram's name to Abraham which means father of a multitude. Or think about Jesus changing his apostle's name from Simon to Peter, which means rock, because he would be used by God to establish the church. Names didn't just distinguish people, they defined who they were. We, we know that's the case as well when it comes to Jesus himself. Mary was told the name of her child before he was even born, his name would be Jesus, which means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. Jesus was given a name 
that captures what he was sent to do. So when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, he's not saying that we use his name like a magical formula. He's saying that whatever we ask that is in accord with his will and that is consistent with his character and made on the basis of his righteousness, that is what he will do for us. Now here in the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus has another name. He has another name. Verse 4 says, we saw this last Sunday, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus has completed the work of purification and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and he has inherited a name that is more excellent than the names of angels because he has become superior to angels. So what is that name? Well, in order to tell us, the apostle does what any faithful pastor would do. He, he quotes scripture. He points us and his original readers to God's word. He wants to show us that he's not making this up. This is not on the basis of his own authority. He's not creating this out of his own imagination. This is on the basis of God's authoritative, inerrant, inspired word. To answer this question of the name of Jesus, he cites two verses. The first is from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Psalm 2 was a messianic messianic psalm. It foretold the coming of a king who would rule over all the nations. The second quotation is from 2 Samuel, verse 7. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. This is when God is speaking to King David. King David had said, I'm going to build you a house. God says, it won't be you. It'll be your son. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, a royal lineage, a a dynasty of kings who would reign after you and uh, represent the nature and glory of God to the world. And as God made this promise to him, he also foretold the coming of another king, a son of David who would reign on the throne of David forever. And so what we have is two prophecies about a king who would also be called a son, God's son. That is the name that Jesus has inherited that is superior to angels. His name is son. When God speaks to him, he says, you are my son. And when he speaks of him, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God has many Angels, mighty angels in his service, countless legions of angels that he dispenses to accomplish his will, but none of them has the name Son. None of them deserve such an exalted title. Only one deserves the most excellent name of Son, and that is Jesus. Now, the question is in what sense has Jesus inherited this name? the name of son. And we know from verse four that the moment that he inherited this name was at the moment of his resurrection and his exaltation because it was after he made purification for sins and he sat down at the right hand of the father that he inherited the name son. But at the same time, we also know that Jesus has always been the son. He is the eternal son. 
He's been eternally generated from the Father. There's been no moment in history or even before the founding of time that Jesus was not the Son and God was not his Father. And that is why before his resurrection and ascension, God declares, he announces, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, both at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. So, in what way did Jesus inherit the name Son after his resurrection and ascension? The answer is that while Jesus has always been God's Son by virtue of his divine nature, it was only after his resurrection and ascension that he became God's Son by virtue of his human nature. Jesus has always been God's Son as God. But Jesus had to earn the right to be called God's son as man. He had to earn it. It had to be by merit. And the apostle who has written the book of Hebrews tells us that that is is just what he has done. Jesus has earned the right to be called God's son. If we look ahead to Hebrews chapter 2, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, uh, we see that the apostle talks about Jesus as being, for a time, made lower than the angels. But now that he has been raised from the dead, he has ascended back to the glory of the Father, he has become superior to the angels once more, established to the original position of dignity and honor that he deserves. Jesus is God's beloved son, his only Son, He is the heir to the throne of Zion, prophesied in Psalm 2. And he is the king who would reign forever, prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He has no rival. He has no equal. He has no comparison. Not even the angels sent by God to dispense his justice can approach his majesty. For no angel has ever been called God's son. Not even Christians can claim this name. Not in the same way that Jesus claims this name. Jesus is God's son by nature and by merit. By nature, by virtue of his divine nature, and by merit, by virtue of his human nature. But we are God's children, not by nature or by merit. We are children of God only by grace and by grace alone. The only reason why we can be called the children of God is because Christ has united us to himself through our faith in him and given us what he has deserved and earned. And that should do two things for us. It should humble us as we know and we realize that we can never do what Jesus has done. We can never earn our way into God's family We can never deserve the title of being God's sons and daughters. We can only be adopted into God's family by grace because of what Christ has earned on our behalf. But it should also comfort us. It should humble us when we presume to be self-righteous. And it should comfort us when we lament that we do not have self-righteousness. It tells us that our status as God's children doesn't depend on who we are or what we do, but on who Christ is and what Christ has done. We don't need to work our way into the family of God. All we need to do is receive the gift of adoption through faith in Jesus Christ because the Son of God has given us the right
to be called the children of God. And it is a right that can never be taken away from us. That is the name of the king. He is the son of God. Of course, the son who is a king needs a throne. And that is what Hebrews tells us next. The throne of the king. The apostle gives us two more quotations here from the Old Testament in verses 6 and 7. The first quotation is from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let all God's angels worship him. The original context is this is in the, at the end of a passage of scripture where Moses is writing a song. The passage is actually called the Song of Moses. And it's, it's the moment where Israel is about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Moses is preparing to send them off because he's not going with them. Why is he not going with them? It's because Israel provoked him to sin. At the waters of Meribah, he was supposed to speak to the rock to have the rock issue water. Instead, he struck it. And the consequence of that was that he was barred from entering the promised land. And one of his final pastoral acts for Israel was to write them this song. And at the end of it, at the end of this song, he exhorts the angels of God to worship God. This, this God who, who, who punishes Israel's rebellion, disobedience, and yet at the same time has compassion on them and will forgive them and restore them as his people. He is the one who is worthy of worship, including from those spiritual beings in the heavenly places. But here in verse six, this is the striking thing about what the apostle does here. What he does is he applies the song of Moses to Jesus. Verse six says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that's Jesus, Jesus is called the firstborn. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, some will fixate on the fact that Jesus here is called the firstborn. Our Jehovah's Witnesses friends will say, well, this proves that he is a created being. He is of a very different nature than the uncreated God. But that would totally miss the point. The apostle is taking a verse about God in the Old Testament, and he's applying it to Jesus. More than that, he's taking a, a verse about the worship of God, and he's applying it to the worship of Jesus. You know, Jesus isn't called firstborn because he's a created being like us and not an uncreated being like God. He's called the firstborn because he had the rights of the firstborn. God has adopted many children by grace, but there will only be one firstborn, and that is Jesus. Jesus deserves the Father's inheritance, the Father's title, the Father's possessions, even the Father's dignity and honor. All of it belongs to him. And that is why the angels are called to worship him, just as they would worship God. He is the firstborn, and he deserves what his Father has received. The second quotation involving angels is taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. Verse seven says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are like wind and fire. Perhaps these elements corresponding to their two roles. They are winds, and therefore they are messengers. Their, their voice goes out throughout 
the world, but they are also fire. They devour, they consume, they, they execute God's justice. But the more important point here is that this verse tells us that angels are created beings. Just like wind and fire are created, so also angels are created. They've been created by God for a divine purpose. But now as the apostle contrasts the sun with angels, he quotes from Psalm 45 to tell us that the son is not a created being. He's not one of God's servants. He is uncreated and he is ruling on God's throne. Verse 8 and 9 says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45 is a psalm that we've preached on here at Sovereign Grace in the past. If you look back at Psalm 45, what it is is it's a royal wedding psalm. It was meant to be recited and sung at the wedding of the king. But the description of the king as God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, one who reigns on the throne that lasts forever and ever, it gives the psalm messianic overtones. And what the apostle wants us to see is the contrast between what the scriptures say about angels and what the scripture says about the son. The angels are called to worship and serve. But the son is called to receive worship and to reign. The son has an everlasting throne where he reigns with a scepter of uprightness. He reigns with authority and with justice and with righteousness. He loves what is right and he hates what is wicked. He is the perfect king in what he does and in who he is. And then the psalm adds, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. This is one of the clearest Old Testament allusions or references to the Trinity that there is a plurality of persons within the Godhead. One who is called God is being anointed by another. Oil is being poured down his head by another who is also called God. Now the, psalm, the psalmist isn't abandoning the, the monotheistic convictions of the Jewish faith. Here, O Israel, the Lord is one. But he is hinting at the fact that God isn't just a singularity. He is a plurality. It then adds that God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is another hint that Psalm 45 was meant to be a messianic psalm because what does Messiah mean? Messiah means anointed one. And here, the king is being anointed by God himself. The king is the anointed one. But notice that it isn't just any anointing. It describes the anointing as the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In other words, this king who reigns on the throne forever and ever, who is also called the son, he reigns with both righteousness and joy. Righteousness and joy are the foundations of his throne. If we were to picture this king on his wedding day, 
He is the happiest man there. None of his guests are as happy as him. None of his servants are as happy as him. No one can exceed him in joy. And no angel can exceed this king who is called son in joy because God himself has anointed him with the oil of gladness. Listen, Jesus reigns on his throne, not as a cruel tyrant, nor as an indifferent sovereign, but as a joyful groom on his wedding day. What he does, what the king does, how he reigns over his kingdom, he does out of love, out of love for his father and for his bride. No one can say that about angels. Angels may be winds and fire, but they can never be a king on a throne who does all things out of love for his bride. The reign of the sun is one of joy and one of love. Not the kind of worldly love that is morally indifferent, the kind of of worldly love that is indifferent to the kinds of choices that people make. It is a righteous love. It is a kind of love that loves what is right and hates what is wicked. I mean, that's true biblical love. The Apostle Paul, as he defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. He also says love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is the kind of love that the Son reigns with, with righteousness and with love on a throne that will last forever because he is a king who will last forever. A throne is only going to last forever if the king who sits on it will endure forever. And that is the point of the next Old Testament citation in verses 10 to 12. This is taken from Psalm 102. It's another passage that applies to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the one God over all the heavens and the earth, and yet again it is applied to Jesus. And the point here is that though creation was made through him, he is not part of creation. Creation will perish, but he will remain. Creation will be rolled up like a garment being rolled up, but he is the same, and his years will have no end. That is true of Jesus, the king, who is also the son. This is the son's throne. It is an eternal throne that is occupied by an eternal king. But now the next question is, what does this king do on his throne? This leads to our final point, the work of the king. The apostle concludes this list of Old Testament citations with what scholars call the zenith of the passage. This is the climax. And the apostle takes us to the climax by citing one more verse, one more messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, this psalm, Psalm 110, is applied to Jesus several times in the New Testament. It is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians. And 1 Peter, it is also cited or alluded to at least a dozen times in the book of Hebrews itself. It's no exaggeration to say that this psalm is central to understanding the work and the person of the Messiah. But for now, the apostle only chooses to cite the first verse of Psalm 110 in verse 13. 
He says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So if you're wondering what the son is doing right now, what the king who is called the son of God is doing, this tells us. He is sitting at the right hand of God. That is definitely not what the angels are doing. You would not see the servants sitting in the presence of the master. God would never tell one of his angels to sit at his right hand while he makes that angel's enemies a footstool under his feet. But the son is no servant. He humbled himself, yes, to become a servant when he became a man to die for our sins, but but make no mistake, he is not God's servant. He is God's son. And as God's son, he has now taken his rightful place at his father's right hand. The seating of the son is what theologians call the session of Christ. The session of Christ. We know about the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. But how many of us know about the session of Christ? And yet that is the apostle's focus in Hebrews chapter one. He talked about it in verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now he says it again in verse 13, sit at my right hand. The father directs the son to sit at his right hand, at the place of honor and trust and dignity. But why? Why is the son sitting? Why does anyone sit? It's because their work is finished. Their work is finished. This is what people do when they're finished their work. They sit down. Jesus has done what God has sent him to do. He's done all the Father's will. He emptied himself of his glory. He entered the world. He proclaimed the gospel. He obeyed the law. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. His work is finished. There's nothing else for the Son to do to accomplish his Father's will. To save sinners like us. His incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection are completely sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. And now it is the Father who is at work. It is the Father at work defeating the enemies of his Son because the enemy, the Son does have enemies. He has enemies who are spiritual. And he has enemies who are physical, angels and humans who refuse to bend the knee to the king. But their resistance will only last for so long. The time is coming when the father will put all his enemies under his feet, under his authority, and then every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory and praise of the father. Now, our text ends with one more comparison between the Son and angels in verse 14. He says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? While the Son sits, angels serve. They are sent out as ministering spirits from the throne room of God. They're busy, but what are they doing and who are they serving? They're serving God, yes, 
but they are sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. God, God sends his angels to serve the ones the Son has redeemed. They are sent to serve the bride of the joyful groom. They are sent to serve us, to serve Christians. Because the one who is called the heir of all things has made us the heirs of salvation. Salvation is our inheritance. Christ has made us the inheritors of salvation. And he has sent his angels to serve us to make sure that we inherit what belongs to us. None of this changes the fact that angels are powerful, terrifying beings. They still serve God as winds and flames of fire. If one showed up right now in this place, all of us, without exception, no matter how mature you are as a Christian, would be strongly tempted to worship it. And that's what happened with the Apostle John in Revelation. He saw the glory of the angel, and he's about to bow down to it, and the angel says, don't do this. I'm just a servant like you. That is how glorious, powerful, and terrifying angels are. But if you are a Christian, if you who were once an enemy of God have now become a child of God by grace, then you don't have to be afraid of angels. God sends his angels not to judge us or condemn us, but to serve us and to preserve us and to bring us safely home into the Father's kingdom. We don't need to be afraid of the angels because the angels serve a king who loves us, who does all things from his throne of justice and joy to care for us. And so the question for you today is, do you know this king? Do you know this king? Do you believe that he is the Lord of creation and the savior of sinners? Do you trust in this king who became a servant, who earned the title of son? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? If you do not, then the Bible says that you are still an enemy of God. You are still an enemy of God. And one day God will put you under the feet of his beloved son where there will be no love or goodness or joy, only wrath and sorrow. But that doesn't have to be you. You don't have to be put under the son's feet. You can be welcomed into the son's arms. But you must repent of your sins and you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And when you do, the moment that you trust in Christ, the Son, as your Savior, the angels take their sword of judgment and sheath them once and for all. And they will turn instead to serve you for the sake of the King that they worship. And if you've already put your trust in Christ as your Savior and King, then God calls us today to simply worship him to worship the Son, to worship the one who has been given the name above all names, the name of Son, the divine Son of God who is the Savior of sinners. He is sweeter than any earthly pleasure. He is greater than any of your biggest challenges. He is more trustworthy than your closest friend. 
He is the king who reigns forevermore on a throne of righteousness and love. And he is the one who will sustain you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need more of Christ exalted and lifted high in our minds and in our hearts. For it is in beholding Christ that we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is when we see the Son that the Son sustains his saints. And so I pray that this exalted vision of the one who is superior to angels, who has received a name that is more excellent than theirs, that he would be our greatest love, our greatest hope, the one we worship, the one we trust in, the one we serve. And we thank you that you have made these powerful spiritual beings called angels the servants of sinners like us. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of them, that we don't need to be afraid of anything because the king who reigns on a throne forever loves us and he will be with us and he will take us to be with himself forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.